Hey everybody, welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. This is a bonus episode. Uh, We're recording it in late July during Shelter in Place. So Father Dan is in his home, I'm in my home. We're connecting by Zoom and we are happy to bring this to you, but we've had a bit of a crazy summer. We know that you have as well. So Father Dan, welcome and I'm glad to be back with you even if virtually. How have you been? Dr. David Dalt. I have been well. Thanks be to God. I know this is a time where a lot of people are understandably struggling and people are experiencing a lot of different feelings, a lot of different uh, hardships, a lot of different anxieties. You and I, I'm sure, have our own versions of that. And I mean, fortunately, the community, the Friar community I live with here has been largely in good health and and my family likewise and, and kind of scattered across New York State as they are. But, you know, my heart goes out to all of those who are continuing to to struggle with this and, you know, in so many different ways, financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, and, and the like. So that's a footnote I just read out loud. And the footnote was to my response, doing all right. <laughs> and so how about you? Been okay. Uh, we, my family, like you, we've been sheltering in place since mid-March. And we have all at various points lost it. <laughs> If that makes any sense. It certainly does. Yeah. yeah. My my son is by far the most laid back of all of us. He's eight years old, about to be nine. And the best way to describe him is kind of chill. Like he's just very even keeled. And even he has had moments where he has just been kind of out of his skull with all of this. But both my daughter and I are sort of cut from the same cloth. And we both are anxious souls. And we both kind of wear our feelings on our sleeves. And so we have been doing a lot of work as a family to process those kinds of things and to be supportive when people are just kind of out of their gourds with uh, anxiety or frustration. And it's hard because my daughter is 10. She wants to be with her friends. She wants to go outside and play and run around. She wants to do all the things that a 10-year-old will do. And uh, we cannot do those things. And she understands why intellectually, but emotionally, it's still very, very hard. And I, I like you, I know that as we're saying this, there are listeners out there who have much more dire situations than the ones that I'm describing. Nevertheless, you know, as we have been going through this and we have been trying to be learning from this about how to be a better family. And so one of the things that we've been doing pretty regularly is we have on Saturday mornings, we have family meetings where we get together. And the first thing that we do is we check in about kind of how we're all doing. And then we talk about what's working in the home and what's not working and how to make that better. And we make those decisions as a family. You know, in religious in religious life, we call that a chapter. Really? And so, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, this so you is a all thing. do similar things? We do, usually on a monthly basis. Yeah, it's very formal. It's written into our rule. And uh, the term actually comes from the monastic tradition, obviously the kind of the oldest formal form of religious life and, and Christianity. And the idea is, it, well, so the term chapter comes from chapter room, which is sort of the meeting room in a monastery where the monks or the nuns would get together. Um, and there would be a, a various sorts of chapters. Um, they've kind of, at least in the mendicant tradition, so like Dominicans, Franciscans, Augustinians, Carmelites, you know, we aren't monks, you know, so we kind of come and go, we're itinerant, we have different jobs and everything, but we still retain this sort of religious concept of a chapter, which is the local, in, in the spirit of subsidiarity, it's the local authoritative body. So you have a local superior, in our case, we Franciscans call them guardians. They kind of are responsible for the community day in and day out. But then the chapter has the, the most authority. It's where you get together at the beginning of the year, for instance, and you decide what is our prayer schedule going to be? What's our meal schedule going to be? What house jobs do, do the folks have? And then throughout the year, um, the way we do it in my local communities, we break it into two. So we usually have two meetings a month and one we call a spiritual chapter. And that's a time where we do faith sharing and that sort of thing. And then the other half, it's called a business chapter, which is where you kind of go over the schedule. What's wor- exactly what you described? You know, we check in in the beginning. How are people doing their health, their emotions? You know, how are things going? Are there any issues coming up? Are they traveling soon? You know, are we having any guests stay with us in the community that those things obviously haven't really 
really been the case since the pandemic. You know, <laughs> the only guest we've had is is really the Holy Spirit. You know, but yeah, so it, it makes me smile because oftentimes you hear, you know, better and worse, I think, depictions of the family, the domestic family, as the so-called domestic church or the local monastery. And I think in the age of pandemic, you guys have naturally gravitated towards something that for two thousand years has been a staple of religious life. You know checking in. Maybe there's some discussion about the emotional life and the intellectual life, frustration, stresses, things that need to be aired by to the whole community. Before Vatican II, there was this tradition which has more or less dropped out of practice, a third kind of chapter called a chapter of faults, which usually happened on Friday morning. And it was when one would acknowledge before the community their own sinfulness or and i think this is part of the reason why it was abolished it was like a jacuzzi you know where you, you say you know like you know david has uh been eating too many oreos and i'm not not washing the this. dishes all that <laughs> exactly stuff. yeah exactly so yeah anyways i didn't mean to to digress too much but that's to me it's it's so familiar what you're describing and it's so helpful that's well, really that's, so, that's incredibly heartening. And we, we gravitated towards this naturally because we had all been living in the same house, but we hadn't been focused on time and having to necessarily have to have life together. You know, kids would go to school, we would go to work, and we would come back and we would eat a meal together and then we'd go to sleep. And that was basically our life. All that changed. And we had to get very intentional because... And I, I'm certain that it's the same in a community like the one that you're describing. If you're living in close quarters, day in and day out, there is going to be points where the friction wears through. And if you don't have a mechanism to deal with that, then all manner of bad things can happen. And so I'm I'm heartened to know that we naturally gravitated toward a, a monastic or a friary practice because that uh, that just makes me feel like the spirit is a little bit in what we're doing. Well. I also want to just talk about how you have been uh, this summer with regard to your work and what all you've been working on. So what sort of projects have you been working on? Yeah, I appreciate the question. And it's it's coming your way soon, too. I know our listeners are eager to find out what's going on in the world of Dalt. So... You know, it's it's been kind of up and down, I think, like a lot of people have. Um, I know something you and I share in common, despite the kind of local challenges we might face, you know, the frustrations of being in isolation and that sort of thing. Nevertheless, we're very, very fortunate to be working in fields, the academy in particular, particularly graduate teaching, that we can do so remotely and without too much. I mean, it's it's not the same as obviously in-person teaching, but but there's some flexibility. So I taught a summer course through CTU on Christology, particularly what's called superlapsarian Christology. You know, it's an answer to the question, why did God become human? Most people would say sin. And that is not a definitive teaching of the church. We we do believe as Christians, as Catholic Christians in particular, that Christ's life, death, and resurrection accomplishes for us reconciliation with God on behalf of the need we have for reconciliation and redemption because of our sinfulness. But then there's this famous question that's posed as a counterfactual. What if Adam and Eve had not sinned? What if we had been obedient to God over the course of human history? Would God still have become human? And, and superlapsarian Christology simply means yes, that it was always God's plan from all eternity. It was part of God's plan from creation. And there's a lot of scriptural evidence for that. And, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who is very inclined to teach when I teach courses, particularly survey courses on a theme to approach it with a historical methodology. And so we go from scripture all the way to the 21st century. And it's, uh, you know, I, I love teaching. It's one of my favorite subjects. I am working on a book that's contracted with Liturgical Press, who's been one of our longtime podcast sponsors. So a shout out to Lit Press uh, on a book titled uh, Not Because of Sin. Uh, and it's and it's an introduction to exactly this theme. So that was fun. It was a big class, folks from, from around the country and internationally. Um, and that's one of the, the kind of silver linings. And I'm sure you found this too in your own work. Um, a silver lining to the pandemic and our reliance on digital media is that if you're doing something in real time and people have an internet connection, you know, we have this technology where folks can really connect across borders, across time zones, across spaces. Um, and that has been very life-giving, um, even as much as looking at Zoom and Skype and the internet explorers and so forth have been absolutely draining. So there's been some teaching. Um, I've been doing some research and working on some projects, that Christology book for sure. I'm working on a couple other projects right now that you know, once we get into the regular season and they're moving along a little bit further, we can. I'll talk a little bit more about those. 
And uh, yeah, plugging along with a lot of the the regular stuff, including you know my column for NCR and and the like. So on, on one hand, there's a sense of of normalcy. I I was able earlier this month to take a little time off in what I called a mini vacation, a pandemic mini vacation, which included the the primary focus of that was to go to Iowa to baptize in a very interesting, socially distant mask wearing Purell everywhere, you know, as a precaution, we call, we call that in, in the liturgical context, the rite of Purell, the R-I-T-E. It's like the rite of penance or the rite of initiation. And uh, I was able to baptize uh, the two kids of friends of mine from graduate school. So it was really very cool to go there. I mean, it was several hours of driving there, which was, I don't typically like to drive because I not a fan. <laughs> Some people love to drive. They find it relaxing. That's not me. But I found it very, very enlivening because it was the first time I'd really left Chicago and the first time I'd been outside of Chicago overnight and in more than four months. And so, you know, everything out there, if, if you're are really smart and safe about it. It's um, and you and you're staying socially distant and observing mask and best practices and everything. It's easy for me to say as as a single adult on the move like that. I realize with children and families it's a bit more complicated, but it was really lovely and I was able to spend you know just some time with them. Uh, again, socially distant outside. It's a great benefit of the summer, um, and then to spend a little bit of time actually in, in northern Michigan where the again it was. The, the rates of, of the pandemic were pretty low in terms of the virus spread. And it was a part of the country I hadn't been to before. And, and it was very socially distant and, and kind of safe in that regard. And so it was nice to have a, a little bit of renewal. I'm, I'm back now in Chicago and I'm in my own, well, normal course of things, which includes schedule-wise about a two-week, coincidentally, two-week pandemic or uh, quarantine because, you know, I've been out in the world. And so I want to make sure to be responsible. And so part of this uh, spacing of my summer has also included quarantining with the intention of doing a similar sort of thing to go and take a road trip to visit my family, my parents and brothers in upstate New York. They've been obviously observing social distancing and quarantining and and only socializing within those networks of of families and and that sort of thing. So provided that all things remain equal um, and that Illinois and New York continue to have relatively stable uh, rates as as we are at this recording, and provided that this quarantining of two weeks means that I've not been infected and therefore won't risk infecting my family members, especially my parents, then I look forward to that. And and again, they have a a little summer place um, up up in the Adirondacks, and I I'm just itching to get out of the city again, especially after that little break uh, around the baptism of my friend's kids. So a real joy. I, I feel very, very fortunate. I, I am, as much as I, I celebrate that really awesome opportunity and connection, I am very mindful of how difficult and stressful and anxious and how inhibited a lot of people are for a variety of reasons. And so I don't take it lightly or for granted. In fact, I thought about all those who are struggling, especially those who are ill or caring for the ill, um, and will continue to do that. But that's kind of where I am. David, how are you? What are you up to? What is the family Dalt uh, going on with your with your chapters uh, beyond that? Well, so my wife and I have been working remotely, and my children, uh, normally my children would go out and do a very active summer schedule. They, they, would be, they would be visiting with their grandparents who live here in the neighborhood with us, and then they, they would also be going to summer camps and those sorts of things. This year, uh, that was modified. They have done some remote camp time, and we made, first of all, the difficult decision for a variety of reasons, too much to go into here, but we're going to homeschool them this coming year. And that, that is partly because of safety reasons and partly because of some decisions that have been made in terms of the, not just the particular parish school where they go, but the entire archdiocese of Chicago has made some decisions that, given the fact that we have some immunocompromised people in our immediate circle of family, myself included, we just made the decision that we didn't necessarily feel comfortable with the speed with which the archdiocese was trying to push open and to ha- have face-to-face schooling again. So that has been an adventure, and figuring out what that's going to look like for our children this year has been very interesting. And as as 
as an educator and my wife works uh, as an administrator at a school, all of those things are interesting sorts of things to look at and to think about. And so that, that's been fun. Earlier in the summer, I taught a six-week course on canon law, which was just a lot of fun. That is an area that I have enjoyed working in and studying in. I My main scholarly focus in that particular realm is in civil law, so I do a lot of work on religion and the First Amendment, but because of that, I've also branched over into canon law and had a really great group of students there at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies, and just, we had, a, we had really good conversations, and given the fact that the world was sort of turning upside down, we had a lot of real-life cases unfolding in real time that we could sort of talk about from a canon law standpoint. This week as we're recording this, I am also teaching a week-long intensive for lay pastors through Garrett Evangelical Seminary. It's something that I've done for the past six years called Theology in the Contemporary Church, where I look at some of the developments in the last 150, 200 years in terms of philosophy and theology and try and apply it to pastoral questions, very concrete questions. And so I, I really enjoy this as well. Like you, I have been working on some writing projects, but I'll be honest, most of what I have spent the summer doing is getting my my mental and physical sort of life organized. Books have come out of storage and have gone up on the shelves. A lot of old papers have, have found new homes, and slowly but surely the piles that have followed me for close to a decade as we have been moving from place to place are getting unboxed, sorted out, and dealt with. And that all feels wonderful. And so that's been the best part of the summer is not only the chance to be with my family, which I've enjoyed a lot, but also the chance to really kind of get my mental space more clear than it has been in years and years and years. That's that's, <laughs> that's a really important benefit. I mean, that's a real important word. Yeah. I, 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 a couple of questions I have, actually. The first is, you know, we're friends and good friends, and in, prior to the, uh, the the pandemic, we would see each other fairly regularly. We have not seen each other in person in half a year, quite literally at this point, almost half a year. And so, uh, and the last time I think we saw each other via Zoom, like this was our last bonus issue, episode issue, what am I talking about? Episode of, of the podcast. And so I'm curious, I mean, you know, you mentioned your daughter in particular would wants to be outside and with her friends and everything. Do you and your family do some socially distant going for walks? I mean, how do you, or do you, do you spend most of your time indoors? I mean, this is something I struggle with and um, because I am a very active person, as you know. And so trying to balance that in a safe way, how has that been for you guys? So we have made an intentional sort of outing several times a week. And so uh, it being the summertime, it gets hot. And so when we first get up in the morning, the practice is to get up and to go for a walk for about a half an hour or 45 minutes as a family. And so we mask up, we wash out, which means we do the sing happy birthday three times while you wash your hands, go outside with masks on. We don't get near anybody. We socially distance as a quartet away from everybody. And then when we come back in, we before we take the masks off, we sing happy birthday three times and wash our hands again and do all the all that stuff and yeah so we we are trying to stay active we also do indoor calisthenics more my other family members than me because i'm you know i just don't move around as much but uh but yeah so trying to trying to keep those things in the mix have been important but it's also i mean it's crazy at first this kind of felt like a weird vacation in some strange way and then it re then we realized both my wife and I that we were working a lot more than we had been working under normal circumstances and so it has not been as easy to find time we've had to be very intentional to find time to stay active and to do those things as well so finding ways to kind of schedule and budget time has been one of the trickiest things mentally because you feel like you have all this space and time and yet you feel like you're moving through molasses it's it's the most uncanny thing. It's so true. I, I feel that as well. I've been on more Zoom meetings. I kind of feel like because people realize that everybody is is staying in place, that, that they can be accessed much more readily. So the email uh, inboxes have exploded. The scheduling of meetings and doodles for meetings have just exploded. Maybe this has always been the case in that there's been kind of social lubricant to, to kind of alleviate the frictions of meeting after meeting after meeting when you're physically moving from place to place or you're taking breaks and, and you know, that sort of thing. So there is a confinement. I've, I felt that as well, uh, for sure. And it's been... 
Yeah, it's not quite a vacation. And I don't mean to minimize the reality of what it's like to be incarcerated. Um, but it, it's not quite a prison either. We are free in a way. And I, I want to emphasize that because I think we see particularly on social media and some of the right wing kind of jargon and rhetoric that has been deeply problematic and divisive that, you know, this kind of what is best for the common good for all people is being portrayed as a lack of freedom or like a violation of freedom. I don't think that's it at all. We're doing this voluntarily. And as Christians, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And it's it's the preservation of, of the common good and promotion of, of life and health for, for all people. But but there is a confinement, as you're describing, and, and I have found, as a runner, that's been uh, a, a source of some, you know, regular, just just moving, just physically moving, like to hear about the calisthenics, as you said, you know, it's kind of, we're back to the 1940s, but, you know, there's some wisdom in that, especially if you're, you're, you're kind of in, in one place. In fact, I had a conversation with a friend the other day, you know, who has felt this pressure even more, you know, they were saying that being on the computer all the time can't even stand watching TV anymore on streaming services. And I, I strongly encourage, I said, I think you should get an actual TV because I think there's something about if, you know, if TV is a source of relaxation, then I think actually there'd be a benefit to not working, relaxing, communicating, doing everything on your computer, because that becomes draining. At least with the TV, you have actual physical distance, you know, <laughs> to save your eyes a little bit to, to just change the space. I mean, it's the littlest things I have found make all the difference. The little, you know, whether you sit in this chair or that chair in this corner of the room or that corner of the room can make all the difference. So I think it's interesting to hear how people are, are, handling all these things. I got a quick question for you. What text did you use? Did you use a text for your canon law course? Oh, used several. So I can't recall if you ever studied with James Corridan. I sure did. That's where I was hoping you were going. Yeah. yeah. So so used two of Corridan's texts. One was Corridan's Introduction to Canon Law, and the other was Corridan's Canon Law as Ministry. And then we also used a text by Sullivan. I'm blanking on the title, but it, it's basically, uh, it, it was a text about how to faithfully read documents documents of the church and to understand kind of how they fit and how to interpret them. So we, I mean, we did that. I also started the course with, we did a week in a book that I love very much by a scholar from Boston University by the name of Jay Wexler, who writes about civil law. And it's a book called Holy Hullabaloos. And he basically takes a road trip to all the major locations where there were Supreme Court religious freedom and liberty cases. And that really gave us a context to begin talking about the law generally and how the law actually applies to religious practice. So that gave us a context to begin to talk about it because for most of the students, they thought of canon law as some sort of alien and very oppressive thing. And so part of my goal in the course was to try and make the law much more tangible to them, the entire idea of how the legal process works, whether in the church or outside the church. And as you know from working with Corden, you know, Corden's entire thesis is that canon law shouldn't be thought of in the context of civil law, but instead should be thought of as a subspecies of theology, something Absolutely. that I agree with very much as well. But again, trying to get students to make that shift, they needed to have a tangible kind of concrete sense of what civil law does so that they could know and understand how canon law diverges from that in, in Corridan's thesis. So it was just a lot of fun to teach that class. Yeah, yeah. Jim Corridan is, is by far the greatest living canon lawyer, and I, I feel very fortunate to have had him as a professor for a number of courses in canon law and, and Washington now, it seems like a hundred years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, that was something he, I remember the very opening class of intro to canon law that I had with him making very clear, he he held up the code of canon law in, in Latin and in English and said, this is not an answer book. And, and I think that's really important, as you say, for those of us who are reared in kind of an American context in which British common law serves as the lowest common denominator and you cross over it's I always do the speed limit limit example which is you know 55 is is the limit 56 is against the law you broke it and so it's the lowest bottom you know the common agreement that we come to and it's based on precedent and so forth whereas with canon law it's Roman law it's aspirational it's you know you see 55 you're like yeah you know you try to do 55 you do your best you can and you try to make a case and you live around aiming to be 55 miles per hour that sort of thing so yeah it's very hard, I think, for Americans to to really appreciate canon law. So it's it's neat to hear that. And I was curious that it was exactly you know Corden that that I thought 
you might be using. I don't know how anyone teaches canon law without his work because it's so it's so important. I do not in any way pretend that I am uh, as deeply steeped in this as the people like Corridan or like yourself who have who have spent a long time kind of going deep. But part of my desire to teach it is to make it accessible to lay people as a lay person, to not try and teach it as a person who has a, a stake in a particular reading of it, but instead to treat, to, and this is very much in line with how Corridan and Sullivan both suggest that we look at the text to treat them as interpretive objects and to and to look at the fact that there are schools and traditions that read these kind of core texts in vastly different ways and can lead to vastly different outcomes. That to me is fascinating and watching the light bulbs go off for students about that particular way of approaching it was so, so gratifying and I hope that they give me a chance to teach it again because I just had a lot of fun with it. That's great. Well, I, I'm realizing, you know, uh, for our listeners, it's been a while. This is not a normal season. This is our summer uh, kind of looser conversation to catch up with each other and to catch you all up with what we're up to. And we hope to hear from you via the various social media threads about what's going on in your worlds. Um, we certainly welcome it. And so we, we are going to talk about a topic. But before we get to that, I think we should just share one bit more of news on both of our ends that have to do with our respective academic appointments, because those have changed over the summer, or at least uh, the announcements have come out. And uh, you know, and that is David is is now a full time uh, professor, assistant professor of well, what you why don't you give us the the whole spiel? <laughs> sure. So I I am now uh, a tenure track assistant professor of spirituality, Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University here in Chicago. And you, Father Dan Haran, OFM, have had a change as well. And why don't you give us your full title? Yeah, I was I was named the fourth holder of the Duns Scotus Chair of Spirituality. Catholic Theological Union. Um, it's, a, it's a tremendous honor and and responsibility, and yeah, I'm very humbled to to occupy that that position. And with that, I mean, in terms of rank, yeah, I guess that also includes a, a promotion to associate professor of systematic theology and spirituality. So, but the the Dunscotus chair is incredibly meaningful to me in, in a lot of different ways. Not the least of which is the endowment that it's named. Too. You know, these chairs at universities are often given as gifts by donors, and this was given by a Franciscan uh, province that endows that faculty salary and the resources that, that are associated with it. And when they made the gift uh, more than 20 years ago to establish this professorship, they named it after someone near and dear to my heart, which is Blessed John Dunn Scotus. I'm actually the, the first Scotus scholar of sorts to, to hold the chair. My uh, the three predecessors were specialists in different areas. The first holder was actually a Bonaventurian scholar, you know, Father Zachary Hayes of happy memory, um, who was just a giant in the field. So as I look back over the, my predecessors, I, I feel unworthy to untie their sandals. So it's, um, but but a, a great honor and a, and a great privilege and responsibility. So yeah, that's good news for, for both of us and very exciting, I think, for the theological world in Chicago in particular, that, uh, that, that Dr. David adult and the Reverend Dr. Dan Haran are here to stay. So let us let us continue <laughs> to do good and mischief together. And on that note, we will turn now to our topic. So what we're going to talk about today, or at least our starting point today, I should say, is a recent column in America Magazine, and it's also here on America's online resources. This is a piece by Archbishop William E. Laurie, and he is the Archbishop of Baltimore, Maryland. And the title of the piece in here in America Magazine is How Church Teaching Can Help Explain Why Black Lives Matter. And for those that haven't seen the piece yet, and I will link to it in the show notes, but basically Archbishop... Bishop Lurie walks through Catholic social teaching, the dignity of the human person, the idea of the common good, which we talk about a lot here on the Francis Effect, but also deals with the more technical concepts of subsidiarity and solidarity. And so it is a walk through what you would sort of expect to be, I would say, probably the traditional and, and most basic Catholic response to something like Black Lives Matter, to basically say, here is how this particular movement fits 
starts with Catholic social teaching and Catholic moral thought. Now, I will say, and I haven't looked as closely today as I did when the article posted yesterday, but there has already been some pushback and some people who are saying things like, well, you know, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization and Marxism is completely incompatible with Catholic teaching. And so there's there's been some pushback against the bishop. But I will say, and, and I will say, I'm, I'm saying this as a layperson, I found at least refreshing the fact that Archbishop Lori walked through the idea of Black Lives Matter using these kind of touch points. That was at least for me, a good start. I wish that more from the USCCB would speak out on racial issues and actually tie it both to contemporary politics and to church teaching in a way that I found here. But I'm interested in your take. Like, what do you think of this of this piece? Yeah. So, a couple things. One, you're right. Bishop Laurie is uh, the Archbishop of Baltimore. It's an important see. Um, I have to admit, I was pleasantly surprised when I read the piece. I was, I had incredibly low expectations. In fact, I had to brace myself when I saw it was Lori who authored it because I thought, here is a potential dumpster fire of an engagement with a very important and timely theme. And uh, the reason for that is because of Lori's history. Archbishop Lori, after he was relatively newly installed as the Archbishop of Baltimore back during President Obama's uh, presidential administration, was really the the kind of focal person during the Affordable Care Act to lead the Catholic kind of we might call resistance or opposition to the ACA, what sometimes is referred to as Obamacare, in part because of concerns about payments for birth control, artificial birth control. And, the, and I'm saying this. I don't mean to take away. I'm just laying this out by way of context because I do think the piece is actually very good. So I will come around to that. But just why I was so surprised is that Lori, back in the late aughts, as it were, 2008, 2009, 2010, was associated with the foundation of what has come to be known as the so-called Fortnite for Freedom. And this was, it, it was a right-wing quote-unquote conservative, because again, this is back in the days of the Tea Party agitation in the midterm elections of 2009-2010 in the wake of the passage of, of the Affordable Care Act. And Lori was really the Catholic face among the hierarchy of the church in the United States to oppose it um, and to oppose it under the guise of religious liberty, which I think, you know, we were speaking earlier in our catching up about your interest in law and First Amendment rights. I think this is an abuse and a misunderstanding of what religious liberty means because there was no interference with the practice of one's religious tradition or denomination. Yet that was the banner under which Lori oversaw organized um, opposition to the Affordable Care Act and the banner under which he kind of theologized, quote unquote, or or made it a faith-based focus. And so so I was in, I was incredibly skeptical. When you have somebody like that whose background and kind of public reputation as a church leader is one that can, could reasonably be characterized as a culture warrior stance. When I saw that he was the author of this piece, I thought, oh, geez, what is he going to say? And to his credit, as you rightly su- summarized, I, I found his response fairly good, fairly good. A couple of observations I'll make and then pass it back to you for, for your observations is he does a good job pointing to four of what are sometimes called the seven or eight key pillars of Catholic social teaching. And I think these are great illustrations. They're great connection points between the church's teaching on moral formation and conscience and social action and the need to respond, as the Second Vatican Council says, to all the griefs and anxieties, the cries of the poor, the struggles of our sisters and brothers, whoever are uh, most marginalized and oppressed. So that's spot on. Um, I also thought it was notable that Archbishop Lori did not, at any point in that article, cite the USCCB's own 2018 document, Open Wide Our Hearts, which I have been on record in very public ways in my column at NCR and in lectures that I've given. And I'm not the only one. Father Brian Massengale, the renowned uh, Catholic ethicist at Fordham University and others have very publicly criticized that document for its inadequacies and for its tacit perpetuation of, of a vision of kind of white supremacy, particularly within the church. And so the fact that here's an archbishop in a very important see, one of the five oldest dioceses in the country, who has this history of a culture warrior stance during the Affordable Care Act debates, being very 
explicit about the importance of racial justice and its tie to Catholic social teaching, I found very refreshing, very inspiring in many ways. I will say he does add a caveat very early on to the point that you're raising, David, which is a lot of people have been throwing around the usual tropes and straw men like Marxism or, you know, an organization that kind of arose around an advocacy and lobbying kind of group that arose around the Black Lives Matter organic sort of protesting movement after the the murder in Ferguson of Michael Brown, you know, one of the platforms that they point out is kind of an openness to various forms of healthcare for women and and access to that sort of thing. And, and that would include on their platform anyways, you know, access to abortion or at least not criminalizing it. And a lot of people disregard the forest for one tree. And and so Lori, I think, wisely anticipated that. And he says, the Catholic Church obviously does not support particular issues or agenda items like that. But that's don't miss the bigger point here. And so in that regard, I think I think it was a good piece. I encourage people to read it. There's a lot more, you know, it's far it's it, there's a lot more that needs to be done. There is an incredible incredibly complex history of racism and white supremacy and privilege in this country and in the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church's contribution to those systems of injustice. And if people want to learn more about that, I recommend in particular Father Brian Massengale, who we've talked a lot about and have had as a guest on our show, um, his 2010 book, The Catholic Church and Racial Justice. David, what are your thoughts? You're hitting on all the pieces, and I I was thinking of exactly those responses to the USCCB. You mentioned Brian Massingale in your own work. Uh, That was on my mind as I was reading this. And so my thoughts on the Lori piece are complex. And in part, I'm thankful that it was kind of a setting of the table of, as you said, some of the major pieces of Catholic social teaching. I was happy, you know that I love subsidiarity as a concept, and so I was happy to see subsidiarity and solidarity kind of dealt with in a in a clear way here in the piece. One of the things that I am aware of is that no bishop is willing to let that solidarity actually come to the point of having a critique of the power structure or to name the power structure that is causing a lot of the need for Black Lives Matter protests to happen right now. And so that, you know, that is is something that I can continue to wish for. I would wish that I don't want to make a universal statement because I do know that there have been some bishops who have been more outspoken on these questions and have been willing in some ways to name the overt racism that we are currently experiencing from the political administrations, both at the state, the national, and the city levels. But I, I would wish that the USCCB or that larger C's would speak out with more clarity on that on that issue. And so I... so. I'm happy with Lori's piece. I'm not surprised, but I, I am a little disappointed that sort of the usual suspects in terms of criticisms of the, of the piece have arisen. The kind of hand-waving dismissal of Black Lives Matter as a Marxist organization and the kind of hand-waving dismissal of the very phrase Black Lives Matter in the face of some who want to insist and double down and treble down and quadruple down on all lives mattering. And to make that kind of a a rallying point, even in the face of those who are who are African American, talking about the injustice that they have faced, and to kind of say, "Well, everyone faces injustice, and Jesus is here for everybody." So all of those things are still swirling around this piece and around these questions. And so I, it, this is by no means a perfect piece, but I'm kind of with you in the sense of saying it's it's at least a piece that didn't fall into the trenches that we were worried it might fall into, if that makes any sense. And I kind of want to bring this back to you because, uh, you know, you and I are both very active on social media and oftentimes, and not just in social media, but also I know that you work on boards and you deal with Catholics of all stripes and so do I. I will say not just around this piece, but also over this summer in some of the organizations that I have worked with as as the... The organizations have been more vocal in proclaiming their solidarity with Black Lives and with the Black Lives Matter movement. I have seen some very visible pushback from certain Catholics that want to say, no, absolutely, all lives matter. Without naming names or calling anything out, I've been very disheartened by that. But I wonder if, I'm going to turn to you now as a pastor, in those moments when we see that there are those who are part of our religious practice, our co-religionists, who are doubling down 
down on this notion that no, all lives matter. What is a response that we can bring to that moment without necessarily blowing our tops, but also speaking the truth that we know in terms of wanting to be in solidarity? That's a really great question, David. And it's one that my answer may not provide the kind of satisfaction in that that kind of middle way that you're describing. And this is something I think, and I recommend people check out an interview that Father Brian Massengale gave to Commonweal Magazine and our own David Dalt here is the uh, engineer and, and producer of that podcast. And I know he knows what I'm talking about. You know, Brian, who's a good friend of ours and of the, of the Francis Effect podcast um, and a brilliant scholar and ethicist, he gives voice to exactly my feeling. And, and that is, I'm out of patience. I don't have patience anymore. I was on a Zoom meeting with a number of colleagues uh, in theology, most of whom were white like me. And part of it was a checking in and sharing and, and all well-intentioned good people. But there was a quick move that was almost universal among a lot of, of well-meaning white people, what Thomas Merton referred to as white liberals in the 1960s, and, and what James Baldwin likewise calls white liberals. And it's not liberal in a political sense. It means liberal in the sense that white allies to the cause. They don't want to conserve, as it were, the Confederacy or Jim Crow or segregation. So they're, they're people who are interested on some level, in some part, on progress and, and being allies. But the problem is it tends to be on white terms, and it tends to be uh, the conversation is often only had in a manner that makes whites comfortable. And one of the things I shared there, and I have no problem sharing it publicly here, and it's something that I've shared via social media and in my in my writing, uh, and I'm working on a longer book project right now in which it'll become all the more evident, which is you know whether we use the language of the anti-racist scholar Robin D'Angelo herself, who is white, who has a best-selling book by the title White Fragility. I have my own issues with the phrase white fragility. I, I know what she's getting at, something she coined in an academic article in 2011, but became the title of this uh, general audience book more recently. You know, what she's getting at is basically white people's inability and unwillingness, more importantly, to confront their own complicity, both as beneficiaries of a system of racial injustice and as perpetuators of structural racism, of systemic racism, even if they themselves don't identify as overtly racist or a white supremacist, they are nevertheless beneficiaries of a white supremacist society in which we are all kind of webbed in together. And so, you know, I think that part of my frustration now with church leadership, and, and I'm not just talking about the bishops, it's their responsibility to speak collectively for sure, but it's also the responsibility of all of those who are entrusted with ministry that goes to the local pastor, to lay ministers, to all the baptized, the whole people of God, to do the kind of work that needs to be done ourselves. And, and by ourselves here, I'm, I'm explicitly saying white people. African Americans and people of African descent and, and people of color who are, they, they first of all, they don't need to be reminded or taught or, or told about the injustices that they experience and face every day that includes risking their very lives for the sake of just trying to exist in the world in a racist society like ours. But they're also not responsible, nor is it their duty to educate white people like us. The resources are out there for us to educate ourselves and one another. And I see that really lacking in, in the highest levels of church leadership. And I'll speak only because I'm a Catholic priest and a friar and a theologian. Um, I'll speak to our church, but, but I think it's true as other denominations are grappling with this as well. And so I, I think going back to Massengale's point, you know, if white comfort, if the conversation is only allowed to proceed in a way that makes white people feel comfortable, then no real change can begin because no real examination of conscious has begun, has started. So I have shared this and I'll share it again. I don't care anymore. I, what I mean by that is I don't care about my comfort or people like my comfort. So I, I'm not actually somebody who can adequately answer, David, your question, because, you know, your, your question is, how do we not blow our tops? As you said, how do we not get worked up? Um, I am worked up <laughs> and I am, and, and, and that's it. I, I'm, I don't care about the, the, I'm going to be blunt here, the bullshit arguments of straw men, 
claims like Marxism behind Black Lives Matter or this is some kind of liberal conspiracy or these things are made up or what have you. That's all nonsense. And, and a lot of it's perpetuated by trolls and anonymous accounts on social media. Um, and it's, it's amplified by people who actually espouse very overtly racist ideology. And you see this in the Catholic Church in social media. You see it in right-wing independent websites and publications like LifeSite News or Church Militant. Um, you see it in Breitbart and you see it in Fox News in, in many ways. Um, and you see it you know, in the current presidential administration. You see it from the White House onward. So I'm sorry that was a long answer to your your very thoughtful prompt. I, I don't know how. I, I think it's incumbent on on everybody, especially white ministers. And in one of my pieces in recent months um, for NCR, I, I lay out the statistics, and there are very, very few. Uh, we're talking about less than one percent of you know U.S. bishops are of African descent, and that's also comparably true among ordained priests. Um, and so it's not the responsibility of black bishops and priests to get up and preach about racism. You know, that's again, inviting a tokenization or a re-traumatizing and forcing people who have already daily lived experiences and the consequences of 400 plus years of racial injustice to, to re-litigate re that in public and then not be heard by the white beneficiaries of racism. It's incumbent, I think, on the 99% of Catholic leadership in the U.S. to educate themselves, to challenge themselves, to risk the discomfort and vulnerability, to acknowledge the ways in which they benefit and perpetuate the system, and then to preach about it, to talk about it, to advocate, and to surrender you know, the, the comfort and privilege insofar as they're able, because privilege is something other people and society writ large give to certain populations. So it's not something you can necessarily just surrender. But the more you become aware of it, the more you can respond to it in constructive ways. And, and if you really care about racial justice, then that's the starting point. If you're somebody who's like me, um, you know, particularly I'm talking to people like me, other white clerics, other white religious. But that's my, <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox for a minute, David. What are your thoughts? So I really appreciate your use of the word impatience. And I think that's oftentimes the relief valve, the steam release valve that is used is, well, you just need to be more patient. I'm recalling that phrase from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the fierce urgency of now. And uh, the, the notion that you cannot necessarily, you can't say to someone who has been in oppression and bondage, well, you just need to wait a little bit longer. You can't prize the comfort of someone who has benefited from the oppression and the bondage over the actual liberation of that person who has been in that state of extremity. And so I, I really, and this was what we saw in the organization that I'm a member of, we saw a real uh, movement of solidarity towards the African-American voices. People were allying and were amplifying and were, 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 were trying to find a way to say, no, we can't have this same exchange happen again where one white voice gets to derail the progress of this conversation. And it, I'll be honest, it was about releasing a statement in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And there was a lot of support for it and there was, a, there was some very strong backlash against it. I'm proud of the organizations that I am with that have taken these stands, and I'm continuing to agitate with other organizations to make their positions clear. But I will, I'll simply say that this is something that is powerful, and it is oftentimes not named. The, and you, you spoke of it as white fragility, but we can also call it, we can call it by a number of names, but it, it's, the, it's the moment where a person begins to feel like they are being personally attacked, and then they, they tend to begin to shift the conversation to make it about their feelings instead of the structural inequities and the experiences that they're hearing. I'm reminded of something that the nonviolence scholar and activist, Aaron, I think her name's Aaron Chenoweth, has talked about, and I don't remember, so I'm going to butcher this, so it's a paraphrase, but in, I think it was in a TED Talk where she summarized well that when we're looking, we're looking at suffering, suffering is not a competition. And so when you when you want to start measuring oppression, it's not going to end well. It's a downward spiral. It's a race to the bottom. And, and I bring that up not to dismiss various forms of oppression, quite the opposite. It's that some people, particularly white people, 
do exactly what you just described, David. And I experienced this very recently. My last column, you know, we're recording this, so I don't know when it would be released, but I, I wrote a column called Running While White. And I talked about my experience as a white man and some of the contrast with, with the theologian Edward Skillebex would call a negative contrast experience of seeing what my experience, what my white privilege is when it comes to something as simple as going for a run and contrasted with the haunting experience of witnessing fairly remotely and only learning about it months after the fact because exactly of these institutional injustices of the murder of, of Ahmed Arbery in, in Georgia, you know, your old state, actually, your, your old home, home area. And I was not surprised, but I was disappointed that despite the fact that I acknowledged very early on in my column, you know, the, the realities of the disparities that gender play when it comes to things like running alone, and I think here of, of people like women, including white women, it was a lot of white women who, not many, but when there was opposition that I saw come my way on social media, it was, well, this, you know, what about us? What about this? And in and, and my response, and I don't mean to be insensitive here, but my response is, yes, I don't think actually that even the most rapacious, violent male uh, of any race or ethnic category or demographic denies the reality of the disparity between men and women and the safety in public. I don't think there is a overarching male effort to deny the precarity that women experience. Even the person who is violent toward women acknowledges that reality, <laughs> even you know perhaps in a predatory way. And and I don't mean to be so graphic here, but I, I you know when I when I see that sort of shift where it's not just about race, what about gender? I want to say, if you look at the history of the current president of the United States, if you're a white woman who's out jogging like a white woman once was in New York City in Central Park, and you are God forbid, murdered or assaulted or some other way uh, harmed, the current president of the United States will take out a, a full page ad in the New York Times and call for the execution of five innocent black men, young black teenagers. You know, the history in this country is it, it's not to it's not to to brush over the real violence that women experience and that sort of thing or anybody else in any other category. You know, my LGBTQ sisters and brothers and others, there are other forms of oppression. The key issue for me with that particular theme is that white privilege, white supremacy, the benefits and normativity of whiteness in this country is by the very nature of racial injustice in our historical foundations and the structures of our reality seek to cover over and erase it to people who benefit from it. And so people are denying the reality of white privilege. And what I was trying to do in that one piece, and I'm trying to make it all about this, but, but just one illustration among millions that could have been presented is if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, as Christ says in the gospels, it's all around you all the time. That includes white women, and I think Brian Massengale in his NCR piece does a good job explaining that in a very long essay about that that is spurred on by the Amy Cooper incident, which also took place in New York City. Well, and the, you, I mean, you're, you're pointing towards something that I think is so vital, and I want to bring it back to Archbishop Laurie's piece. I think that those who are in a position of authority and a position of public visibility, oftentimes they do not take the step of actually naming the vulnerability and naming the violence. They will instead obfuscate. They will make, and I, and by using the term obfuscate, I'm, I'm, I'm intending that to mean they say something that sounds kind of fancy and highfalutin instead of saying we, we have murder and we have violence being done to populations who are vulnerable and who need our protection and our advocacy. To me, that is the role of any person who wants to bear the title of Christian it's their job to stand in the fray between those who would do violence and those who would who are intended as the victims of that violence like that's the place of the christian to me especially that's the place of the bishop like if i were to think about what a bishop's role is that's you know the bishop i, I think about that wonderful uh, movie romero and and the way in which archbishop romero was depicted as literally being 
a person standing between the vulnerable and those who had the rifles. That, to me, is is the proper place of the church. I don't often see the American church taking that role. I don't often see the American church standing in the fray in that way. I, I too often see bishops who are very comfortable being invited to, di- to dinner parties, and that to me is a, is a problem. And so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for Archbishop Laurie spelling out the various aspects of Catholic social teaching that are applicable to Black Lives Matter. I would like to see more and more bishops speaking up and actually naming the fact that we have problems in our society that are needing not just to be acknowledged with a distant kind of pointing, but rather with a naming. And, you know, this is we can bring this back to the scriptures. When Jesus confronts the the person possessed by multiple demons, he asks who he's dealing with, and he is answered, you know, and being able to name the demons that are there among us is an important part of what Christ's role and power is in all of this. And if somebody's going to be standing in persona Christus, they have an obligation, I think. And I'm saying this again as a lay person, so I recognize that there's, you know, there's pushback against this, but but they have an obligation to to name the principalities and the powers. And to stand in the fray against them. And I'm, you know, that that to me, I think I would be much more heartened if the church was willing to do that much more publicly. Well, and I think, I mean, it's interesting, there, there's some slippage even when we use the language church, because I agree with you. I think what you're describing in, in this moment when you talk about church is church leaders, those who are entrusted with leadership, you know, you know, le- leadership in ministry in the church at all is never anyone's right. You know, even by virtue of holy orders, I it's not my right it's a privilege, it's a position of servitude as Jesus modeled for us, it is a responsibility, but it's not my right, it's not for me. Ordination only makes sense, and ministry more broadly only makes sense when it's ordered to the whole church, which is the people of God. And so by baptism, Every Christian, every Catholic has a responsibility to do exactly what you're saying, David. And so to put it in contrast, I would say actually there are quite a few, you know, certainly not the majority, but there are quite a few of the church, members of the church who are doing their part. The thing that's most disappointing to echo what I think exactly you're saying is that those who are entrusted with the responsibility and the privilege and the and the and the servant leadership of hierarchical leadership in the church are the ones who are failing their baptismal responsibilities. And that is scandalous and it is shameful. I applaud Archbishop Lori because I think you're right. And yet he doesn't go far enough. And I want to make a caveat. And here I I want to draw from an image that the great educator and writer, Bell Hooks, an African-American feminist writer, says in one of her books about teaching, where, where she's pushing back against certain criticisms of, again, what we might call you know, academic intersectionality. Like intersectional oppression is real, which means that if you're a black man, you you are you are vulnerable in a racist society to a lot of discrimination and harm. If you're a black woman, you have double bind. You have the gender and the racial oppression that exists in a culture like ours. So no one's denying that. But there are times where I think academics in particular, or people who are well-trained or steeped in these traditions can get very nitpicky and purist about things. And Bell Hooks uses this great image that that is haunting in a way where she says, you know, if you're dying of thirst, water that is a little bit dirty or has some specks of impurities in it is perfectly fine. That pure water, clean water, absolute perfection, purity is, is a privilege only for those only for those who, who are comfortable, who are privileged, who are secure. In other words, if you're dying of thirst, you'll drink anything. So any little bit really matters. And I think about this in terms of Catholic teaching justice, particularly on, on race, where, where I'm inclined because of my passion about this and my own interest and my own scholarly attention to it, which can become abstract in the way that Bell Hooks herself, an advocate of racial justice and of, of pedagogy that is, it is focused on justice and agency and that sort of thing, we can get stuck in our, our own thinking and be overly critical. So in that regard, I want to applaud Lori is, his, his water is muddled. It is not pure water. But you know what? For those who are who are dying of thirst because of injustice, it, it's a starting point. It's a beginning point. So I want to encourage our listeners. You know, there's there's been a lot of this kind of purity shaming for people who have done a lot of work, particularly among our colleagues who are scholars. And and I want to call them out and say, stop it. On the one hand, I want to, as I see part of my responsibility 
as you said, David, both as an ordained minister in the church, but as, as a white scholar, as a white man in the U.S. context, it's part of my responsibility to challenge myself and, to, uh, and others like my brother Lori, Archbishop Bill Lori. However, it's also my responsibility to hold myself in check and to recognize that everybody starts at a different place. And so some, you know, reading a book or reading 10 books isn't going to be enough to do anything, but it is a start. It, it, may, it might be that muddied water, but if it helps to bring an awareness of the realities that are before us and that disproportionately affect people of color in this country, then that's a beginning. And I, and I really applaud that. So in that regard, I, I do want to give a thumbs up to Archbishop Lori, but let it be a beginning. It's not an end in itself. And as to, you know, because I know we're, we want to wrap up, but let me just say this, as to the people who are pushing back on social media and crying Marxism and all the rest of this garbage, shut the hell up. <laughs> you know, I have nothing else to say. I mean, I, I, I think that that kind of reaction proves the point of how deeply embedded systems of justice are in ways of thinking that are present in our racist society and in the church. And so to your point, David, I applaud it, I support it, I amplify it, that, that it's the responsibility of those who have authority in a technical sense in the church to call that out. And I think Lori is, you know, maybe a little late to the game, but he's starting and I accept that. And I, I, I want to encourage him to keep going. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. Dan, I cannot wait for the fall to come when we will be back in a regular season of The Francis Effect. It is so good to see you and to talk to you. Thank you for taking some time today. I know it's been kind of a crazy summer, but man, it's, it's good to be with you. Thank you for this. And as we say in the church and with your spirit, but actually I'm going to adjust that because this is a podcast and folks can't see it. David has got a, a wild and uh, very impressive beard. And so, uh, David, it's been good to, to be with you and with your beard slash spirit. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with you in September. Look forward to full uh, episodes of The Francis Effect then. Until then, know that you're in our prayers, and we will look forward to being with you soon. 